0: Let us pray for illumination before today's scripture. Speak to us through your words, O Lord. Help us open our hearts to you, that we may trust in all that is possible through you. Amen. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth let it be to me according to your will, and the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. I want to begin by today by just saying thank you to everyone who's been praying for our family in in the loss of Linda's mom. Thank you, Nate, uh, for including that in your prayer. Um, uh, we'll be driving out uh, to New York on Tuesday for her, her funeral and then returning on Thursday. So would uh, appreciate your prayers for, for those travels and our, our remembrance of her. This uh, um, event has been a reminder uh, to us that the holiday season that we are entering is often not as bright and joyous as the songs we hear in the stores make us think. And and there's certainly nothing wrong uh, with enjoying uh, this season, but we all know uh, that it can be difficult in in all sorts of ways. And uh, Nate, in his prayer, uh, did uh, such a nice job of of bringing before God all the heartaches and the struggles and the suffering that we we know continues uh, in our world. Um, And there's so many other things that we could add. I I think especially of the, the horrific gun violence that continues to inflict suffering on uh, one community after another in our country, you know, most recently in this past week in Colorado and in Virginia. Uh, But there's so many other sites of suffering that we could name here today, both personally and around the world. And as we've already been saying in our service, it's this reality that makes the season of Advent that we begin today uh, so important. Advent is more than just a warm up for Christmas. In Advent, we remember what it was like for the Old Testament people of God to wait for the coming of the Messiah in expectation and hope. And we remember that we are waiting as well, waiting for Jesus to come again to make all things right. And so as we wait, we live in this time between the times, uh, the time between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it's because we live in this season uh, that we can be honest about the ways in which we still struggle, but we can also always remember God's faithfulness and and rejoice in his presence. Uh, The Savior who came in weakness and vulnerability as an infant uh, will come again in strength and power as the risen king. Now, this is the Christian hope, and it's this hope, that is real and lasting. We don't pretend uh, that everything is okay when it's not. So it's not a superficial hope, but it is a real hope. The, the stories that we love to tell in this season remind us that God meets us in the hard places and invites us into his joy. The, the joy of Christmas that we're looking forward to is not a joy that we have to manufacture for ourselves, but a joy that we receive as a gift of grace uh, in the gospel. And so, uh, as we begin our season of Advent, uh, we're going to focus on one of the most central stories of the season, uh, the story of Mary in the gospel of Luke. And this week, we're looking at the narrative of the Annunciation, the verses uh, that Carrie just read for us from Luke 1, And next week, we will focus on the Magnificat, Mary's song. So, uh, our text today, uh, the Annunciation text, shows us how Mary receives the gospel. And next week, her song shows us how she responds to the gospel. So, this week, how Mary receives the gospel. And next week, we'll see how she responds to the gospel. And so, for today... What can we say about how Mary receives the gospel? The first thing to see is that Mary receives the gospel as an ordinary young woman. This might seem like a trivial detail, but I actually think it's pretty important. The gospel writer stresses the ordinariness of Mary in in three different facts that he's careful to include here. First, Mary lives in Nazareth, in the Galilee, far away from the capital city of Jerusalem. Nazareth was an unremarkable place. Literally, it's not remarked on anywhere uh, uh, hardly before this. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, in the Apocryphal literature, or in Rabbinic literature. Uh, One of the only times that Nazareth is mentioned in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John uh, when Nathanael asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So in other words, basically all we know about Nazareth is that expectations were low for Nazareth. The second way that Luke stresses the ordinariness of Mary is what comes immediately prior to the Annunciation, earlier in the chapter. Before Gabriel comes to Mary, He goes to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. And where does this happen? Well, in a much more impressive place at the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah is a priest, he's devoted to prayer and living a holy life. And Zechariah is told by the angel that he and Elizabeth will be the parents of a great prophet, John the Baptist. Where is Gabriel sent to announce the birth of the one greater than John, the Messiah, the Son of God? He sent not to the temple or to a priest, but to a young woman in an out-of-the-way, ordinary place. Finally, the last thing to say about the ordinariness of Mary is that she was already, at this point, betrothed to be married to Joseph. Uh, Mary was not uh, apparently expecting this visit uh, from Gabriel. She wasn't preparing for this moment. The angel appears while she is just going about her life. And the announcement comes as a disruption. This helps us understand why Mary responds as Luke describes in verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying... And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's troubled at the saying of the angel that she was favored and that the Lord was with her. She's confused and perplexed by what he is saying, and she has to try and figure it out. What is he saying? Why should she be favored? The way Luke tells the gospel story, this is all part of the point. Of the four gospels, Luke most emphasizes Jesus' ministry to women, the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. All the ways in which God comes to those who don't expect him or think that they're not worthy of him. And here at the very beginning of the narrative, We find Mary blessed, not because she's already pregnant or because she's done anything to make her worthy of God's attention. She's blessed only because God's purposes are being accomplished through her. She's a recipient of grace. She has nothing to boast about, no great deeds to claim, any distinctive status or worthiness in herself. The Lord is with her because this is what God does in the gospel again and again. Uh, He moves close to those who know that they have nothing but their need. And the message is for all those who are empty and know that they need God to fill them. And this is why, this is good news for us here at the beginning of Advent, as we live in the time between the times. The Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge says, The church lives in Advent. That is to say, the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ will come. We do not know the day or the hour. If you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. To live as a Christian does not mean that you escape from the darkness or confusion of this world, but that you have a light in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. The God who came to Mary with favor in the ordinary course of her life comes to each one of us with the same message of hope. Whatever your grief, whatever your loneliness, whatever your anger at injustice or whatever your trouble, you are not alone. The Lord is with you. So, I've said that Mary receives the gospel in, in the midst of her ordinary life. But this is not to say that her life was not also extraordinary. The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The historic Christian claim is clear that this conception of Jesus was a miraculous one. This makes Mary quite extraordinary. In fact, she herself had questions. She asks, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So if you have questions about this today, you're you're in good company. Mary is in a long line of people in the Bible who respond to God and his mysterious actions uh, with hard questions. And this is good to remember because it gives you permission to ask your own hard questions, whatever they may be. God is not afraid of your questions. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if any church leader ever says to you, don't ask any questions, just believe, my pastoral direction to you is to turn around and run the other way. Questions are not bad, and you shouldn't be afraid to ask them. But when we do ask questions, it's also important to be open to answers. And for this reason, let me me offer a way of thinking about the virgin birth that may help us understand why the gospel story unfolds in this unusual way. The theologian Ben Myers in his excellent little book on the Apostles' Creed, makes a helpful point about why we struggle to make sense of the virgin birth. Here's what he says. The trouble starts when we take this line of the creed, uh, the born of the Virgin Mary, and view it in isolation. It would be like finding a bicycle chain if you had never seen a bicycle. You would struggle to make sense of this strange object, What is it for? Is it a weapon? Or an uncomfortable piece of jewelry? Uh, To understand the bicycle chain, you have to see it in its proper context. It's the same with the virgin birth. If we take it in isolation, we might conclude that it's just a spectacular miracle, or even a logical absurdity, and it becomes a sheer effort to try to believe it. As if saying the, the Apostles' Creed were the same as trying to believe six impossible things before breakfast. So, to, to understand the virgin birth, Myers is saying, we need to see how it fits into the whole story of Scripture. A story, he says, in which miraculous births play a starring role. It's true that if God is the creator of the universe, then nothing is impossible for him. But he's not just giving us something impossible to believe as a test, he's bringing the story of Israel to its climax. And that's what he wants us to see. You'll remember that that story, the story of Israel, begins with a promise, a promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis that they will have a son in their old age, which finally comes true after many years of doubt and struggle. And as that story progresses, we find the same motif over and over again, apparent barrenness met by the miraculous power of God. We see it later in Genesis and in Rebecca and Rachel, the wives of the other patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, We see it in the mother of the great judge, Samson. We see it in the story of Hannah, the mother of the priest, Eli, And later, in the Babylonian exile, the motif of the barren woman becomes a symbol for the whole nation waiting for God's deliverance. The prophet Isaiah declares, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. As Ben Myers says, this is how it goes in the Old Testament. At the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story is a story of miraculous births. So it makes sense then that here at the climax of the story that we find a barren woman, Elizabeth, uh, in her old age, But not only that, but a virgin woman who heightens the miracle to another level. This heightening of the miracle communicates the uniqueness of Jesus. He is unlike any prophet or priest or king who has come before. He comes into the world unlike any other person as the human son of Mary and and the divine son of God. One scholar has said that what we find here can only be described as an extraordinary action of God's creative power, as unique as the initial creation itself. That language of new creation power is exactly right. Gabriel says to to Mary in verse 35 the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High. Will overshadow you. This is the spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 at the creation. It's the same spirit that filled the tabernacle and led the Israelites through the wilderness. It's the spirit that filled the temple in the land. This Shekinah glory uh, that was revealed in the creation and, and in the Exodus and in the tabernacle. And in the temple, is now present in and through Mary in her conception of Jesus. When you see the, the conception, the, 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 the virgin birth, as the culmination of the whole story of the Bible, it points not just to God's extraordinary power, but to his faithfulness. He was faithful to the people of Israel in all their years of waiting. And he will be faithful to Mary and to all those who follow after her. And this is also what makes Mary's final response uh, so vital. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We've seen that Mary receives the gospel as an ordinary young woman who has nothing about which she can boast. We've we've seen that Mary receives the gospel as the miraculous culmination of all redemptive history. But most of all, Mary receives the gospel through faith and trust, trusting in God's word. She hears God's promise of grace and favor, and she trusts him for it. I wouldn't say that Mary is the first person to hear the gospel proclaimed, because I I believe that message goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when, when God tells Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. But Mary is the first person to hear the announcement of the fulfillment of that prophecy. That in her seed, her offspring, God is finally acting to destroy evil and set the world right. And he does it in the most surprising way, through the Son of God, hidden in Mary's womb. He identifies with humanity in all our frailty, even when we are at our smallest and our weakest. He participates in the whole human life cycle, from the womb to the tomb. And when God sends the angel to Mary, he makes her into a participant in his great story of redemption. The story that continues today. The gospel declares that in our ordinary lives, God is at work and he invites you to see your life story through the lens of his promises and the fulfillment of those promises in the person and work of Jesus. This is what we celebrate at Advent. Yes, the world can be very dark, but the Spirit remains at work, and you can trust in God's presence and in His faithfulness. Every time we gather for worship, every time we read God's Word, every time we celebrate communion, we declare the promises of God and tell the story of His love. And we're all invited to say to God with Mary, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, when you pray like this, you have a source for light that can shine even in the darkest places because there's no place that is too dark for him. If you believe that he is yours as a free gift of grace that is not dependent on your record of achievement, then you have a source of joy that you can call upon in any circumstances. If you believe that God's power is manifest in the weakness and vulnerability of an infant, then you have a source of hope when your own response to the world's wrongs feels weak. When you're looking not to yourself, uh, but to God for your identity and your significance, it changes your perspective on everything. A few years ago, uh, when our family lived outside New York City, I attended a Christmas concert at Carnegie Hall, uh, led by the contemporary hymn writers Keith and Kristen Getty. It was a mix of Irish music with new and traditional hymns. And as they played, they wove the Christmas story and the gospel message into their performance. Halfway through, uh, there was an intermission, and I turned in my seat to to meet the woman who sat behind me. Her name was Lisa, and it turned out that Lisa had no idea who Keith and Kristen Getty were. She didn't know any of the hymns, the old ones or the new ones. She just liked Irish music. And this seemed like a fun holiday concert to attend in the city. Uh, But in the first half of that concert, she had heard the Christmas message for the first time. And I'll never forget what she said. With a kind of wonder and amazement, she said, If you believe this, your grades don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. And it's true. If you believe that God has already given you the greatest gift imaginable in his son, if you know that your deepest desires for recognition and satisfaction have been met through him, then you don't have to worry about what anyone else thinks or even what you think about yourself. Your identity is defined by his word of grace and peace. Just as the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. That same message of favor belongs to anyone who believes. Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the message of your grace that we celebrate in this season and at all times. We pray that you would give us in these coming weeks a greater vision for how your love is revealed in the incarnation of Christ. May we see your faithfulness and your favor revealed in him, and may we be ambassadors of your love to all who need to hear a word of
0: grace.